Would you turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Mark? Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you'd like to borrow one, there are Bibles over on the table over there that you can use any uh, time you need. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible that you borrow for the morning, uh, you can keep that. That's our gift to you. I would encourage you to take that and uh, use it. If you would like someone to read it alongside of you as well, we'd love to uh, connect you with someone that would uh, love to do that as well. Uh, If you don't know where to find the book of Mark, the book of Mark is in the New Testament. So in the latter half of our Bibles or the latter uh, portion of our Bibles, the New Testament begins with the four Gospels uh, with names that you would recognize, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Obviously, Mark is the second one. That's the one that we'll be working through. Our Bibles are organized in such a way that there are chapters and verses. And so the chapters are the big numbers. uh, Verses are the small numbers. And uh, that's how we navigate ourselves around such a uh, large book. And so we are going to be starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So it doesn't get much easier uh, to find in the context of Mark than that. And we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses this morning. If you do still have trouble finding that, uh, there's a table of contents. And if you still have trouble finding that, just tap the person on the shoulder next to you and they would be happy to help you find it, I'm sure. And parents, help your kids track it down as well. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to listen closely to the question because I think it is the most uh, important question that you will ever be asked in your life, and that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There is a correct answer to that question, and it matters very much. It's, it's life or death that we get that question right. And so you can think to yourself, how would I answer that question? Who is Jesus? And I want to encourage you to listen because our passage this morning answers that question. It answers that question for us. And so once you've found the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy and true word? God, would you speak to us now through your word? Amen. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In a blog post from a few years ago, Pastor Kevin DeYoung gives some examples of how we can get this question wrong, how we can actually generate in our own minds a wrong answer to the question, who is Jesus? He talks about there being therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and how not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than the non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot, wears a sash, and looks German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance. Imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves, and lifts us up so that we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's guru Jesus, a wise inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ the son of the living God. We can see from that wide sampling of what Kevin DeYoung writes that there's a lot of answers to the question, who is Jesus? And so I ask you again, I want you to really think in your own mind, who is Jesus? Well, the first four books of the New Testament, as I've said, are called the Gospels. Uh, They tell the story of Jesus. They tell the same story from different vantage points. And this morning, I want to embark on a journey through one of those accounts, the gospel according to Mark. Now, Mark is the shortest of the four gospels by far. Uh, It's punchy. It moves quickly. But it doesn't uh, skimp on detail, I think you'll find. Uh, I think there's a bit of a caricature that we have uh, about the gospel of Mark, that maybe it's like an abridgment or a, a short version of the other gospels. Well, that's not true if we look just at the amount of of detail and facts that are contained. Mark just doesn't waste words. What we can also uh, help shape our understanding of this, too, is is the fact that most agree that Mark is the first gospel. It's the first gospel that was written. And this makes this document incredibly significant. Uh, Most understand the gospel of Mark to be written around 60 to 70 A.D., Mark, or John Mark, as we may see his name as he comes up in different uh, books of the Bible, 
Uh, he is uh, a close associate with the Apostle Peter, who is a very close friend of Jesus, who we'll hear lots about. Uh, well, we'll hear lots about Jesus, but we'll also hear lots about Peter as we study the book of Mark. And from the earliest days of Christianity, Christianity, it was understood that Mark wrote on behalf of Peter, because Mark wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't along for the ride, so to speak, but he was documenting Peter's experience and what Peter, Peter saw and heard. Now, the purpose of Mark's gospel is to encourage Christians. It's to encourage Christians specifically in Rome who were facing intense persecution. And there's both internal evidence, which would be evidence from the gospel itself, right, in the text uh, that leads us to believe that. And there's also external evidence, what other people wrote about Mark's gospel very early on in uh, church history uh, that make us believe that. Because around this time when Mark wrote this gospel was when Emperor Nero was cracking down on Christians. He was systematically and violently persecuting them. Nero didn't like Christians. He even blamed them for the great fire in Rome. Uh, various accounts record the horrific things that Nero did to Christians. And to those who would profess faith in Christ, he would crucify them. In horrible ways. Uh, he would burn them at the stake. Uh, there's even stories of him using them as torches to light his garden parties. He would send Christians out into the arena with wild animals to be killed for entertainment. This is the setting of who would be the first uh, recipients of this document. These Christians who were facing this kind of persecution. And so Mark wrote to give the Christians facts but he, gave to give them, he wrote to give them a lot more than just facts. They needed hope. They needed good news in a world of bad news. And so in writing this book, Mark gives them the answer to the most important question in the world. Who is Jesus? Because if they were tempted to have a distorted view of who Jesus is, it simply wouldn't do. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's done what they've said he has done... That would give them a hope that stretched far beyond the incredibly difficult circumstances that they found themselves in the present. It would give them a hope that even stretched beyond death itself. They were in a scary place, but they could be encouraged that Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Christ, lowered himself to their level, even to death itself, so that they could find life. And so the same is true for us today, friend. You may be here and you may be thinking you like the sounds of, you know, Starbucks Jesus or open-minded Jesus. But what about when life gets real? Is there any hope there? We need a real Jesus for real life. It's where we can find real hope. And so this is the big idea that I hope you see from Mark 1, uh, verses, uh, chapter 1 to 13, is that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is good news. If you've been in the church for a long time, that might not sound like a profound statement, but it indeed is a profound statement. Jesus is the Son of God, and that is good news for you today. We see this all through uh, our passage this morning, but we see it right in the very first verse, a verse that's bursting with significance, a verse that I almost just preached the whole sermon on, uh, but verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
The word gospel, we've talked about lots of times here at this church, but the word gospel literally means good news. It wasn't a word that was invented for Christianity or for Christians to talk about the gospel as we know it. It it just was a word that meant good tidings, good news. It was used for the arrival of a king. If a king showed up, you'd be saying, the gospel, this is the gospel, the king is here. Uh, Or if there was victory from a battlefield or any other kind of form of good news. We see an example of this in 9 BC. When Caesar Augustus was born, it was heralded as the gospel since he was thought of as a god. His birthday signaled the beginning of the good news for the world. So what Mark is doing here as he begins his gospel in this way, very intentionally, he's saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's taking this un- thing that this, his readers would understand, this gospel concept, and he's applying it directly to Jesus. Right? He's not even saying that this gospel is a set of ideals or a set of truths. He's saying this gospel is a person. And this gospel is Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is a title. Uh, Also, the same word for Messiah means anointed one. The Christ, or the Messiah, was the promised king who would come to deliver God's people. And so what Mark is saying here is that the one that God has promised to send as a savior for his people, the king, this deliverer, is this Jesus. He's a long-awaited, promised Messiah. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus is not simply a good man or an earthly king that maybe people were expecting, but he's actually the son of God. It's a verse that's packed with meaning. And those are bold claims right out the gate that Mark makes. But Mark doesn't simply just lob these claims out and then move on with the story. Because maybe his readers are skeptical. Maybe you're here this morning and you're skeptical. Well, the whole book of Mark works to verify and validate this claim that we find in the first verse. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that is good news. This morning, as we look at these first 13 verses, I want to ask three questions that can help us affirm who Jesus is. The first question, what do the Old Testament prophets say about Jesus? What do the Old Testament prophets say about Jesus? We find this in verses 2 and 3. Look there in your Bibles. It says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this here, this quotation is actually a compilation of a couple different quotations from the Old Testament, uh, a couple Old Testament prophecies. And Mark does not quote from the Old Testament quite as much as the other gospel writers, but he obviously thinks it's important because after his lead-in sentence, his kind of topic sentence, he goes right to the Old Testament here with this compilation uh, passage. And we can study these words that we see in front of us, and that's really helpful. When you run into Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, you want to look at what those words say. But I heard one pastor one time describe Old Testament quotations. uh, He compared them to hyperlinks. Are we familiar with hyperlinks? So when you're in a document or you get an email and then there's something that's blue and gets underlined, if you click on it, it takes you somewhere. 
That's what a hyperlink is. You don't only have to look at the words of the hyperlink. You can click on it, and it gives you the whole context, the whole meaning of what that hyperlink is. And so we can do the same with Old Testament quotations. We can essentially click on the hyperlink, and it takes us back to where they came from. And so the, the, the majority of this quotation comes from two places. The first half comes from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1. And then if we click on the second part of the hyperlink, it takes us to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3. This is what we heard in our call to worship this morning. Now, Mark only references Isaiah. This is common that he would reference the, uh, or that writers would reference the more notable or the more uh, direct quotation. And so we don't have to be surprised that he doesn't reference Malachi. He talks about Isaiah here and then summarizes. Now, what do these quotations tell us if we click on the hyperlink and we get a little bit more context? Well, Malachi chapter 3 is a passage of judgment. It's a call for repentance to God's people. A second, Isaiah 40, is a passage of salvation and hope. And so in this quotation, in this hyperlink that we click on, it starts to set a stage for us of two twin themes, judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. The whole Bible is littered with these themes, even judgment, uh, even salvation, rather, through judgment. And so there's a dense symbolism that, that comes out of this as we think about the direct context of where these quotations came from, as well as the rest of the quotation itself. Uh, boys and girls, this is a tip for you. As you listen to sermons and as you read the Bible on your own, a good clue as you're studying of what's important is look for things that are repeated. Okay, you want to look for things that there's repetition. If something is said over and over and over, it's often very important. And we find that in this passage in Mark 1, 1 to 13. We find the word wilderness repeated over and over and over. Now, the wilderness carries a lot of symbolism, too. If we know our Bibles, we can think of many instances where wilderness is uh, described as, as a, a central theme in Scripture. We think of Adam and Eve when they existed in this garden paradise, but when they sinned against God, they, had to, they were driven out which, into the, the wilderness. When we think of Cain, when he uh, was condemned for his sin against his brother, he was then condemned to be a wanderer in the wilderness. We think of the Israelites who grumble and complain, and then they have to spend years in the wilderness. The wilderness is an agent of judgment. But we see, too, throughout Scripture that the wilderness is an agent of salvation. It's through judgment that God's people find salvation. It's through the wilderness they must go. And so here we see these twin themes, especially as we hear this, this refrain of wilderness repeated over and over again. This judgment and this salvation. The judgment from Malachi 3, the salvation from Isaiah 40, it sets the stage for what's to come. Well, what else do these quotations tell us? They give us even more information. Well, one thing that the, this quotation does is really lifts up both John and Jesus. John the Baptist, who we see described in this passage, and Jesus himself. How does it lift these guys up? Well, first, it lifts up John the Baptist because it, it, it talks about him as this messenger from God, as a prophet. He's not just some crazy guy in the woods, right? Because that's what we picture when we hear the description of John the Baptist. This guy's a bit of a, an odd duck, right? But the way that this... Uh, 
quotation lifts him up is that he is a messenger from God, not just a messenger, the messenger. He is the forerunner to Jesus. Now, it also elevates Jesus himself, because as we heard, as we heard uh, for Isaiah 40 as an example, it was talking about this promised one who would deliver his peop- uh, the people, and who was that promised deliverer in Isaiah 40? Well, it's described as Yahweh, God, God himself. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus is being lifted up as that one. There is a, a massive amount of significance that comes with that statement. That he's saying Jesus is the son of God. Mark has already made that claim in verse 1. And here he's saying, you know the, the one who the prophets predicted, or when the prophets predicted that God himself would come and save his people? Well, that this is him. This is how he's doing it. This is Jesus. So it lifts up John. It lifts up Jesus. This is what the Old Testament prophets say about the son of God. But what does John the Baptist say about the Son of God? That's our second question this morning. What does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Well, we see this in verses 4 through 8. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now we can easily get distracted by some of the details in this passage. And some of these details, uh, again, they, they might feel distracting, but they're actually incredibly illuminating. Who is this John character? Well, again, as I said, to our ears, we might think he just sounds like this crazy dude in the wilderness. Uh, now, he is a bit odd, but his oddities matter very much. Uh, this description of his clothing is very closely aligned to the description of the clothing of a prophet in Zechariah chapter 13. Even more explicit of a connection is where we see in 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah the Tishbite is described as one who wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather. And so there's a direct comparison here to this Old Testament prophet, Elijah, that it's not simply a fashion statement what they're talking about, John. They're saying he is very much like this other prophet who wore this clothing that would be associated with the very poor. uh, And he called his people to repentance. And so we see that John is being kind of run as a parallel here uh, to this Elijah character. Now, John, in all that he does, he's self forgetting, he's humble. Uh, And as strange as it sounds to our ears, he lived out this in every facet of his life. He lived the life of a nomad. He ate food that he could find. And so he eats honey and, yes, locusts, right? Big grasshopper-looking things. Now, that sounds really strange to us, and it is strange. Uh, It might make you thank God for lunch today, that you don't have to eat locusts. Uh, But there's lots of people in the world who eat locusts. Locusts, it wouldn't have been quite as odd to the original hearers of this as it is to us. Uh, Locusts are even described as one of the clean foods in Leviticus that people can eat. But John is a full-blown celebrity, right? He's a big deal. It's hard to estimate what kind of numbers of people would be showing up, right? If all the country of Judea and Jerusalem came to hear this message and be baptized. 
But hordes of people were coming to hear John. They followed him out into the wilderness, into this place that rings of judgment and salvation. And what was John doing here? Well, he's preaching and he's baptizing. Now, the word baptize, as we considered just a few weeks ago, simply means to plunge, to dip, to immerse somebody in water or something in water. And so what John is doing is he's dunking people in the River Jordan. Now, baptism and things like baptism would have been a kind of common understanding in a sense that people were familiar with ritualistic cleansing and those kinds of things. But it's hard to say where John came up with this for himself. Uh, I mean, came up with it from God, I'm sure. But it's not like this was common practice for them, that uh, they would be normally going out into the wilderness to get baptized. Uh, But what John is doing is he's preaching this message of repentance, and he's baptizing people uh, to symbolically cleanse them from their sin. Now, what was his message? I already said it. Judgment. Judgment and salvation. It says in verse 4, repentance and forgiveness. And I'm certain in those days, as much as it is today, repentance is not a popular message. The call for people to repent is not a popular message. But believe it or not, repentance is good news. And we we can illustrate that by thinking of going to the doctor. Maybe you go to the doctor and, you know, something doesn't feel quite right, so you go to the doctor to get checked out, and the, you go to one doctor, and the doctor says, looks great, everything is, you know, you, you're a specimen, you're doing absolutely fine, sends you on your way. It's good news, right? Well, it's only good news if it's true. But what if it's not true? What if you're actually dying of some disease? It, it, the, but the doctor, maybe he doesn't want to offend you, because maybe it's your own doing. Maybe it was a life time or you have led a horrible lifestyle and it's your own fault that you're going to die of this disease and the doctor doesn't want to offend you so he just doesn't say anything and sends you on your way but then you want a second opinion so you go to a second doctor and you have honestly quite an upsetting conversation with that doctor because that doctor tells you uh, the bitter truth but he tells you honestly and clearly uh, that there is This is the the diagnosis. This is what you've got. But the good news is, it's fully treatable. Now, which doctor is the one that you would want? Or maybe better, which is the doctor that you need? And so we may not like the concept of hearing about our own sin and its consequences. We may not like the feeling of having to be the one to share that prognosis with uh, our friends, our family, our co-workers that share that same fate. We may even be tempted to go to churches or preach sermons that don't talk about sin. They don't talk about the need to repent. But if we do, we fall for an evil lie. And we become corroborators in that same lie that sin is not as vile and damning as it actually is. John clearly preaches the need to repent. And as individual Christians and as a church, we know the gospel. But if we refuse to be honest about sin with ourselves, with each other, or with the world around us, if we refuse to talk honestly about this disease that's killing people, how unloving is that? Now, you are not John the Baptist. You do not have a specific commission and call to be the forerunner for the Christ. 
But you do have a specific commission and call, if you're a Christian, to go with that message, to make disciples. You need to love people enough to preach a message of repentance. Like John 2, that isn't all there is. There's good news. John declared that there is one who's coming. Verse 7, he said, and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, John is a big deal, right? He's a celebrity in every sense of the word. He says that Jesus would be mightier than him. John could have let this popularity go to his head. People sometimes even thought, maybe this guy's the Messiah. You know, he could have been like, uh, well, he could have maybe taken some of that and been like, well, you never know. Uh, or he could have said, hey, I have an important job to do. I am a, I am a pretty big deal. Well, that's not what John does. He gives this uh, description of the chasm between Jesus and him. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. To that, that, that's the lowest of the low. Culturally, this act would have been below the responsibility of even a common slave in their culture. So John is literally saying that he is not even worthy to do a job that's reserved for the lowest slave. And that's not because Jesus comes in with all this clout and bravado. It's because John is saying the chasm is so wide. Jesus is that mighty. He is that authoritative. He is that good. And John, of all people, who's faithfully, honestly living a life devoted to the Lord, he's preaching this message faithfully of repentance. He doesn't let the gap between him and Jesus uh, get squished together at all. He's very clear. He, there is one mightier than I to an infinite amount. And he takes it even one step further, he ups the ante in verse 8. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is external. This baptism that Jesus offers is internal. John's baptism is a symbol. Jesus' baptism is the real thing. We see this throughout the New Testament, that what it means to be saved is to have our dead hearts regenerated, renewed by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens at conversion. It's what it means to receive new life through what Jesus does for us. And so John is being so explicitly clear here that Jesus is not just a good man. He is saying Jesus is God himself. Who can bestow the Holy Spirit? Jesus. That's God's job. And so he is elevating Jesus to the level of God himself just as the Old Testament prophets did. He elevates him to be able to do something that only God can do. And so the Old Testament prophets say that Jesus is God. John the Baptist says that Jesus is God. But what does God say about Jesus? That's our third question this morning. What does God say about Jesus? We see this in the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had come out of the water, immediately, this word immediately, you're going to see, comes up a lot in the Gospel of Mark. I can't remember, it's like 40 times or something ridiculous. In this short book, he says the word immediately. It's just his signature move. But 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He was sinless. And he remained sinless until he would die for the sins of the world. So a great question to ask of this passage as you're studying it, or maybe you've thought this before, why was Jesus baptized? Well, we've already said it. Jesus came to pay for the sins of the world. Everything about what Jesus does here is condescending. And I mean that in the, the right sense of the word. We're going to sing a song later which talks about Jesus condescending. And it always kind of jars me because we think of condescending as uh, a really insulting thing. But what it really just means is lowering to someone else's level. And so when Jesus condescends, he comes down to the level of humanity. He literally brings himself down to us. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven to save us, not because he needed to for himself, but he did that for us. He doesn't come to save us because he's lonely. The Bible talks about how God saves us because he's merciful in his salvation, in his saving. It displays the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. It brings him glory to save us. Now, Jesus didn't come as an earthly superpower. He came as a humble savior. And Jesus united himself with the humanity he saved, uh, came to save by becoming human. He united himself with those that he came to save by being lowered down into the waters of the baptism that they deserved. Not because he needed to repent. He never sinned. But his entire mission, his whole mission was to willingly place himself among the guilty. This is at the heart of the best news in the world, church. What kind of God would stand in place for someone under a death sentence? Well, Jesus would. Jesus did. And he did that for you if you would simply turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we are tainted with our sin. We deserve punishment. Jesus lived a sinless life, and what happens in the gospel is Jesus says, I will take his place, I will take her place, and I will let them then be credited with my perfection, my righteousness. The message of Christianity is a message of judgment and salvation. Right? Don't, don't downplay the, the reality of judgment. The, the good news about it, though, is that that judgment does not need to fall on you. That judgment falls completely on Christ. The gospel is a message of judgment and salvation. The sinless Son of God came to save humanity. And we see that God affirms his identity and mission. It says that the heavens are torn open for a second. I think I always just imagine that like the clouds, you know, slow. I was looking out the window this morning. The clouds were absolutely flying. They were moving quick. But I think what's being described here is something far grander than simply some clouds moving apart. What would it look like for the heavens to be torn open? But it's symbolically demonstrating exactly the reality of what's happening here. That Jesus, the Son of God, the very person and glory of God in the flesh, came to earth. Heaven is meeting earth. And Jesus 
we see here, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and he empowers him for his earthly ministry. And then this voice comes from heaven affirming exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. This gives us even more. It's not simply just the statement that God says from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This, this has this extremely clear allusion to the servant songs in Isaiah. The servant songs in Isaiah. The first one uh, is in Isaiah 42, verses 1, which says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's the first servant song. Very similar language to this, uh, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And all this builds up to where this all culminates in the final servant song, which is the familiar passage we know, Isaiah 53, which tells of this Savior who would come and bear the sins of the world. So in God's affirmation of Jesus in Mark 1, 11, he is affirming Jesus and his ministry that he came to do. And he does that by saying, in the present you are my son, I am well pleased. But he also points back to these promises that were made centuries earlier. This is our savior, the son of God, who then we see driven out in deeper into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus goes deeper into this place of loneliness and danger, deeper into a place that echoes with this uh, salvation and judgment. We see twice in this little section this wilderness, wilderness being repeated. Mark moves quickly through this section. If you want to spend time this afternoon, you can read through Matthew or Luke's gospel to hear the account of uh, Jesus in the wilderness. But the point is no less clear here in Mark. What Mark is saying is Jesus does not keep himself at a distance. He doesn't show up and go right to the earthly throne and see what kind of power and esteem he can get. Jesus is plunged deeper and deeper into the wilderness for our sake. Mark 1 makes it very clear that Jesus, the Son of God, the promised King, the anointed one who would come, is also the humble servant. He comes to us. That's exactly the Savior that we need. Jesus was tempted as we are, but without sin. Jesus came and went toe to toe with our greatest enemy, Satan and sin itself. And spoiler alert, Jesus wins. And so as we conclude, I want you to think, uh, literally imagine yourself as a Christian living in Rome in the first century. You hear that Nero is cracking down on Christians, killing many of your friends. You wonder whether you're going to face a similar fate as word spreads that Nero's rounding up more and more Christians to make a spectacle of putting Christians in a ring with wild animals to be killed. And so you and your Christian brothers and sisters are hiding in the catacombs, the tombs below the city, fearing for your life. And it's like Satan himself is out to get you. What do you do? Do you give up on this whole Christian thing? Do you recant your profession of faith? Well, if you follow whatever the first century equivalent of the Starbucks Jesus is, you would. Because there's no power in that. 
But then all of a sudden you hear that the Christians are getting together. Because Mark, a friend of the Apostle Peter, wrote down the life and ministry of Jesus. And they're going to get together to hear about these stories that you've heard before. But you're tempted to doubt. And when you get together with your Christian friends, you hear and are reminded within the first minute that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God who would come to save his people. He was promised since the earliest days of humanity and prophesied about over and over, each one of those prophecies coming true. Then you hear of John the Baptist, who you've heard many stories of. He's a true celebrity in his own right. But he says that even compared to Jesus, he was less than a slave. And then you hear the story of God himself declaring that Jesus was his son. He came to fulfill a mission that pleased God. He is the promised suffering servant, a man of sorrows who is no stranger to grief. He talks of one who would be pierced for your transgression, crushed for your sin. You hear about this amazing Jesus and you're shocked again to hear that even with all of his power and authority, he didn't come to flex his power like Nero is trying to do. You hear about Jesus, the Son of God, who went deep into the wilderness, who himself went into the waters of baptism to unite himself with people like you who can sympathize with your humanity, who can sympathize with your temptation and your weaknesses, temptation that you're feeling right now. You're even shocked to hear the image that you can't get out of your mind that Nero is using wild animals to publicly kill your friends. And that Jesus, Mark says right here, is familiar with wild animals. Why would Mark put in that detail? Well, maybe that's exactly why. Nero all of a sudden becomes a lot less scary when you remember that the Jesus you follow went toe to toe with Satan and sin and death and one. As you hear about the Savior in the wilderness fighting his own spiritual battle, you remember a promise that was made by God millennia earlier that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And the more you think about this Jesus, who he really is, the more your spine is reinforced with steel to stand for him in life and even in death. Because who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ. He's the authoritative and mighty king, yet he's the humble servant who stands in your place. He's the son of God. The prophets awaited him. John the Baptist affirmed him. God himself approved of him. And you believe in him. And this is just the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed again to think of this old, old story, which is so much more than a story. It's so much more than historical biography. It's the story of you loving the world enough to send your own son. God, we thank you for this glorious good news that saves and transforms. Would we come away today asking the question, honestly, who is Jesus? And would you soften and open each of our hearts to have a grander view of who this Savior is and what it means to follow him? 
Heavenly Father, as we eat and drink the bread and the cup, help us to think of this Savior, to think of our hope, to think of this one who condescended to ransom us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.